0: Last Friday, Rebecca spoke beautifully about learning a new language of the heart. So this talk is really about that. It's about learning the mysterious and tender, natural responsiveness, this language of the heart of the chitta. And I always love this uh, frame for the four Brahma Viharas that Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs wrote. So I'll just offer this, you might have heard it before. It really encapsulates each and how they relate to each other. So the four sublime abidings. Metta, the love that connects, is an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upekka brings the heart back into balance. Upekka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, Metta brings the heart back into balance. And so over the next few talks, the three of us will be covering these four Brahma Viharas. And you've heard a lot about this metta, this love that connects, this friendliness, benevolence. And so tonight I want to talk about the second Brahma Vihara, Karuna the love that responds. And so in this Vasudhi Maga style of practice, as we're using phrases, we can use phrases for metta, as many of us have been, or we can use phrases for karuna, for metta, for compassion, this uh, loving heart that has the deep wish not to suffer. So it's really this friendliness, this basic connection, connectiveness of the heart, when turned towards suffering, towards any kind of sorrow or grief, any kind of strife, it's this responsiveness that says, "Ah, I wish to be free of this. I want ease. Does that feel natural to you? It's a very natural wish. So it has this different flavor because it's metta that's come into contact with grief, with dukkha, with suffering. So the traditional phrase is really tune into this wish that we not suffer. May I be free from suffering? May you be free from suffering. May you be held with care and love. May you be free from your pain and your sorrow, your fear. So we can use these phrases in the same way we've been using the metaphrases. And I just want to tell some stories and talk some about my experience with this particular flavor of the Brahma Viharas, this brave heart that is connected to the very real suffering in ourselves and in the world. So this first step of compassion is a turning towards Have you been doing this some in your practice? It can be very difficult. And yet I think on retreat, we're very much confronted with all of the the asavas, the outflows, the pains in our hearts that we carry. Appropriately, we're in a world so complex, so full of difficulty. And we're cultivating the heart here again and again that can be with all of those vicissitudes, that can be with the fatigue, the diligence, the moments of boredom, the moments of uncertainty, and feeling lost sometimes. So this courage, this fierce heart that turns towards these complexities, that knows how to be with. We have to learn, we have to learn about history, about our collective suffering. We can't bypass the decimation of native cultures, the violence of slavery, the legacy of racism, targeted cruelty of homophobia, violence against women, ageism, so much suffering here. And we can see internally and also on a collective level, of course, there's this shrinking and a turning away so often. It's very difficult to confront these, to be with them in a stable kind of way. And so we feel uneasy, perhaps, internally, externally, But moment by moment, we have to learn how to hold all of this. Sadness, grief, overwhelm. Also notice our willful ignorance. And this integration, this metabolizing, we also have to rest a lot. Have you noticed that in retreat? Sometimes we just get tired. We have to rest. I find it helpful face-to-face with all of this. We need to take naps and play, be with children. We need to do all of this. In retreat, we find our little ways to maybe be playful some out in the snow, or just really enjoy your sip of tea. We find a childlike nature in retreat that can be a kind of resting back because we're so confronting all of these ups and downs of the heart, these worlds internally and externally that we live in. And so this researcher in Germany, Tanya Singer, she's done a lot of work on compassion, and she was really looking at this capacity we have, the heart and mind, what happens when we're confronting difficulty? How does the brain react? How does the body react? She was coming up against a lot of fatigue and seeing overwhelming grief in her clients, her patients. And so Mathieu Ricard, this beautiful monk born in France, He's in the Tibetan tradition. He had a conversation with Tanya Singer and he said, you know, you're missing something in your compassion research. You're missing this altruistic wish to do something about the pain. So we need the second part. It's not just the willingness to turn towards suffering. It's also listening to that responsiveness that says, oh, what can I do? I really wanna help. May we be free. So this wish, and really tuning into this wish, which isn't fabricated, it's not something we force. It's the natural quivering of the heart. And when we really bring that into the light of our awareness, it can be empowering, energizing. And maybe just the willingness to stay a moment longer with the difficulty, that might be all that we can offer, and that might be enough. But we can still feel agency, presence, resiliency, and courage in that altruistic heart that knows, I want to participate, I want to help. And, you know, I've been practicing for some years now and I still, I I don't really understand compassion. I think it's so complex. And it has so many near neighbors. You know, all of these Brahma-viharas, they slip so easily into their near neighbors of grief, of pity, of overwhelm, of sorrow. And I would say we might have to experience some of those near neighbors in order to learn how do we come back into balance and feel the upliftment, the energizing, the bravery, that compassion, true Karuna can give us measured with joy, measured with equanimity, measured with metta. So this summer I was doing these Brahma Viharas, these phrases, just as you are, and had a deep learning about how compassion can actually feel good. I know that sounds simple, but really, how often are we in some kind of empathy fatigue or some kind of overwhelm? And yet compassion as a Brahma Vihara has a strength, it has an uprightness, a kind of steadiness, and empowerment that really can be with and wish well in a way that's uplifting. And this training that we're doing again and again, it's a response that can become the default setting of our lives. In some ways it already is, we just need to listen to the chitta, listen to the heart. So a few years back, my partner and I, we were living in Hawaii, and he was doing his internship for his um, Ph.D. in psychotherapy, so he was working mostly on the island of Molokai in an outpatient clinic called Uvai. And Molokai is a unique island in the Hawaiian archipelago because uh, mostly inhabited by native Hawaiians, and they have protected their land from the tourist industry. So he was flying out there in the little planes and living for about half the time on this island and working in this outpatient clinic and learning the language. They speak pidgin on Molokai, so learning a new language and then really hearing the stories of these people. And Hawaii is a place where colonialism is very uh, vivid, very recent, very alive there. Queen Liliokalani was overthrown in 1893 by an illegal coup. And then for six decades, Hawaii was annexed by the U.S., not a recognized state, no voting power. And then in 1959, it became the 50th state, but against the wishes of most Native Hawaiians, who were still pushing for the return of their monarchy. So, a lot of stories of oppression, just feeling the streams of generations of living under colonial rule, landlessness, disempowerment. And so in the middle of this year, this internship, he, was, uh, he had a supervisor named Dr. Austin. Dr. Austin was the founder and the director of this clinic, Native Hawaiian woman. And he said to her, how do you do this? How do you work day by day, year by year, and live with these stories? How do you stay? How do you stay with this? And she asked him, she asked, well, how is it for you? What's coming up for you? And he said, well, it's overwhelming. I'm tired. I'm so full of sorrow. And she looked at him very clearly and she said, you know, that's extra. That's extra. And it's not really serving you. It's kind of overwhelming. And if you can keep remembering that you're here because you have this care, this desire to participate in, to be with, to do something about it, if you rest in that desire to help, that intention is very sustaining you notice what you can do and you let it energize you in your practice and I don't think Dr. Austin is Buddhist but to me that's a pretty clear definition of compassion and just knowing her for a couple of the potlucks we had I think she embodied it pretty well So another story, this was, gosh, maybe a decade ago, I was very much following my Tibetan teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, and traveled to Bodh Gaya to participate in a prayer festival that happens every year, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. So lots of people were there, lots of pilgrims. There were candles in the evenings and chanting and bowing and all kinds of ritual at, this, at the Bodhi tree. And there's many temples around Bodhgaya where there was ritual and prayer. And Mingyur has a large monastery, lots of monks outside the, near the city gates. And the 17th Karmapa, was staying at that monastery during this time to participate in the festival and also offer audiences for small groups of people every day. And so I had met the Karmapa. Did I tell you this story? I met the Karmapa when I was really young. Now it's all overlapping what I've said and what I haven't. But I met the Karmapa when I was very young. He was a a role model for me, and so I really wanted to go see him. Oh yeah, this was in 2011. And so it was pretty easy. You just go in, sign up. We had a group of friends. We all went together, signed up for this time, and we were led up the stairs to where he was staying in his room. And at the appointed time, maybe seven or eight of us were ushered in to see him. And he's quite a figure. He's very much like the Dalai Lama. But in this particular room, a small little room, he was just sitting on a chair. Um, we all crowded in around him, sitting on the floor. I remember he was kind of sitting like hunched over, still pretty young, maybe at the time he was like 26, 27, and uh, first what we did, we all bowed to him, we said hello, and I had brought an invitation to my wedding, <laughs> I, said, I gave this to him, you can come to Oregon if you want, <laughs> so I did that, and then we all had an opportunity to ask questions. And so we went around, and I remember a friend, so sincere, he just asked a very simple question. He said to the karmapa, he said, what is bodhicitta? And if you know, in the Tibetan tradition, the vajrayana, bodhicitta is the foundation of the whole path. And lots of definitions, the awakened heart, the heart of compassion... So you can say a million things about bodhicitta. We thought, okay, Karmapa could discourse on this for days, right? But the Karmapa hearing this question, what is bodhicitta? He thought, he sort of stumped over. He's like, what? (laughs) He looked so like stumped. Like, oh man, you're going to ask that question? Remember he had a bright orange beanie on and he kind of pulled his beanie over. He really was like, Oh, (laughs) what do I say? (laughs) He really paused. He looked so like, I have no idea. And then what came out, it felt so spontaneous, not studied in any way, so fresh. He said to all of us, he said, bodhicitta is like the sun. It shines equally on everyone. He said, sometimes when I'm doing bodhicitta, I think about how the wind blows in the grass. There's no boundaries to that wind. It just blows all the grasses, blows over us. And can we imagine our bodhicitta, our wish to alleviate suffering, blowing out, touching everyone, without exception, nobody left out, shining like the sun, blowing like the wind, no boundaries, practicing for the benefit of everyone. So that's kind of my touchstone, I think, for compassion. Compassion like the sun, like the wind. And you've all been in the territory of this. You've been in metta, in the metta field that Devin spoke about. Can you feel it? It's kind of like the sun. It falls on everyone. When we have this moment of true, balanced compassion, karuna, it feels so impersonal. Really, it's not cultivated, it's not like curated, it's not fabricated, it's just this impersonal grace that comes, we don't make it happen. So yes, it's energizing, it gives us agency, it gives us faith, and also it's a very strong heart. We can let in the suffering, we can feel the sorrow. So this summer, I was doing several weeks of these compassion phrases. May you be free from suffering. May you be free of your pain, your fear, your sorrow. In my neighbor, in one of these rooms, I had a, a, just a lot of good feeling for him. I didn't know him or them. Um, but when they came right away, I was like, oh, a neighbor. <laughs> and then could just feel the solidarity in their practice. And this yogi who had a bigger body. And so I remember just watching go down the stairs, and very carefully moving through. And I just, I felt a little like, keep an eye, you know, make sure they're okay. And one of these days when I was doing my compassion phrases, I saw them fall. They were out going out down the stairs out this porch and fell. And it was like my heart just crashed. And I didn't know what to do and I didn't, know what to say or not. And it was a painful kind of compassion. It really was, There's the layers of it. In that sense, if I want to help, but I don't know how. So compassion can feel this way too. It doesn't always have to feel this kind of empowering, stable, energized kind. It can be real heartbreak. We can let it in. One of my favorite phrases from a lovely Dharma teacher, Pascal Eau Claire, he says that through practice, we're learning to care for these aching and complex hearts so we can care for this aching and complex world. And isn't that so true? Isn't that what you're doing? You live in such a broken world and such a beautiful and grieving and sorrowful and wondrous world. The writer Gloria Anzaldua, the struggle has always been inner and is played out in outer terrains Awareness of our situation must come before inner changes. Awareness of our situation must come before inner changes, which in turn come before changes in society. Nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our heads. And have you been using some images in your practice? Some heartfelt wishes? And we don't doubt the power of what we're doing here. Nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our heads. Very transformative practice that we're doing. So Maddie Weingast, dear friend, friend of IMS, he wrote a book of poems with Aya Ananda Bodhi inspired by the poems of the early nuns called The First Free Women. This is one of his poems called Grandma Sumana. After all those years looking after others, this old heart has finally learned to look after itself each act of kindness, a stitch in this warm blanket that now covers me while I sleep. And so practicing kindness for ourselves translates into kindness for others. Practicing kindness for others translates into kindness for ourselves. And often in dominant culture, we're trained that it's what two-way street. It's just for me or just for you. But the Dharma was always for the welfare of both. The Buddha said the most excellent and sublime of practitioners is the one that practices for the welfare of ourselves and for the welfare of others. And as we fill up with love, it naturally spills out. It's its nature. We don't have to push it. I'm sure you've seen this, I feel it. I'm sitting here in the field of metta that you've created. It's collective. We feel it, it's not separate. And so when we lived on Oahu, one of my favorite things was to go visit the temple, Kagyu Tekchen Ling, the Shangpa Kagyu Tibetan temple there in Honolulu, run by a beautiful lama named Lama Rinchen. And I love to go there because George was always there. George lived in the neighborhood and he was born in Hawaii, but was ethnically Okinawan. And was very proud of this heritage that he had. And I learned so much about the Okinawan culture just by hanging out with George because he lived in the neighborhood, but he would be going out, driving across the island to pick people up and bring them to the center and then take them home again. And we would always join in in putting out the cushions and then stacking them after the teaching, helping in the kitchen to prepare the potlucks, and then put out the plates. There's always something to do. And he was an embodiment of this yuri maru. In Okinawan culture, it's a community spirit of working together, this sense that many hands make light work. And he taught us that this sense, again, in Okinawan word, ichariba chode, once we've met, we're brothers and sisters and siblings. And I really felt that with him, so welcoming, so much, like, come in and help, help garden, You know, let's do this together. And he would say, sometimes you can best take care of yourself by taking care of others. I think what we're doing here is very much that. That this place was built in the goodness of so many. And all the yogi jobs and all the ways that we're caring for each other, just in small ways, by giving space and moving with care. It's so palpable. And so I'm in a little bit of a culture shock today because at the retreat center, we were teaching a retreat in the Sayada Utthijaniya style, which is very much building a kind of kanaka samadhi that is based on many different objects of awareness. And the instructions are very simple. We just be aware no effort towards cultivating a kind of gathered samadhi, no meta phrases, don't really talk so much explicitly about the Brahma Viharas in that style. But the idea is that as we're aware moment by moment, these qualities grow naturally, just like seeds that are already in our hearts. And so, when the storm came and all the snow started falling, and the yogis were supposed to leave the next day, it was so beautiful to see them, even in the silence, gathering in the parking lot to dig out the cars. Mm-hmm. So, last night, lots of yogis, lots of folks, they ran out of shovels. But they were really covered, those cars were buried. So then early this morning, lots of people out, all these wonderful IMS staff bringing more shovels, bringing more machines, No machines, everybody working. Many hands make the work light. Shoveling snow, shoveling snow. And so when I came into the, the hall this morning and looked at the bulletin board down at the RC, people had written all these haiku about shoveling snow. After the ecstasy, shovel out the car. <laughs> Before crossing the floods, shovel snow. After crossing the floods, shovel snow. <laughs> All these notes about, I'm free, I have energy, I can help. It was such a spirit of Yuri Maru, built right in this retreat where we hadn't talked about metta for a minute. <laughs> so Natural. So, you know, we talk a lot about compassion. It can become this kind of highfalutin thing, but it's so innate. And I kind of like this word anukampa. In the, in the Pali text, I learned this from Gil Franzdahl. This word occurs so often, anukampa, much more than the word karuna. And Gil translates anukampa as simple care, just caring. I care about this. Sometimes it can be said as crying out at the crying out of another. Or the sense that when a violin string is struck, the others vibrate too. Do you feel that? So sensitive, this heart. An automatic reaction in the body that is a true sign of solidarity with one another. So again, living in Hawaii, I learned about Eddie Aikau. He was born in 1946, Native Hawaiian. And he quickly became well-known at Waimea Bay because he was the lifeguard there. He was a very good lifeguard, good surfer. He served, he saved more than 500 people as a lifeguard and very early on he won a bunch of the big surfing competitions on the North Shore of Oahu. And so then in 1978, the Polynesian Voyaging Society started looking for volunteers to undertake a 30-day voyage that was meant to retrace the original Polynesian migration from the Tahitian Islands up to the Hawaiian archipelago. And so in a traditional boat, they were going to go back from Hawaii down to the Tahitian Islands. So they're going to take about a month. And so Eddie was 31, and he joined the crew. And it's famous, the story, there's a lot of newscasting about it, and because the boat was traditional, and a small crew, 12 people, and big endeavor. And pretty soon after launching, the boat developed a leak in the hull, and ended up capsizing. It's just 12 miles south of Molokai, open water. And the crew had life jackets, But the equipment they had wasn't working to call for help. They weren't able to radio out. And it was getting pretty desperate. They're here, they're on deep water, cold, life jackets, 12. And then Eddie was there. He had a surfboard. And he said, I'm going to go for help. And it was so clear this is what needed to be done for him. He's like, no, I'm going to go. And he was strong, strong swimmer, strong paddler. So on a surfboard, he headed out towards the island of Lanaii. The crew waited and waited. And eventually, I think, as it was getting dark, the Coast Guard found the crew, rescued them, and then went out searching for Eddie. And they didn't find him, never found Eddie. But he had that Anukampa, isn't it? That quivering of the heart. This is what needs to be done. And so living in Hawaii, you can't really pass a car without seeing a bumper sticker that says, Eddie would go. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more than just a tribute to him and his courage. But Eddie would go is the life, it's the heartbeat of the Hawaiian Islands, it's aloha, it's the sense of how can I help, what can I do, a whole way of being. So another poem by Maddy, and Aya Nanda Bodhi. This one is called Mitta, or friend. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know that trust, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. Making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. So there's this new course on 10% Happier. Have you seen that course? (laughs) This is my guilty pleasure that even on retreat, I sometimes (laughs) listen to 10%. (laughs) But this one in particular I wanted to watch because it's with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So this whole crew of 10%ers from Boston and other places went out, they went to uh, Dharamsala just this last fall and they filmed with Dr. Richie Davidson, who was a friend and colleague of ours, and with the amazing Zen teacher, Roshi Joan Halifax, and His Holiness. And they kind of just hung out with him. They saw him doing all these meetings, and he was doing this uh, conference at the time with young world leaders from all over the place, and they were asking him questions. And in one scene, there was this young woman, lot of grief, lot of sorrow, and she was telling him about her experience in the pandemic. I think she was living in Brooklyn, had lost family members to COVID and then her brother had committed suicide. So much loss. And she asked him very earnestly, what do I do? How do I hold this? So much to hold. And his holiness, again, unstudied, not forced, so natural. He didn't even think about it. He had this piece of cake And he said to her, come here. It's so beautiful, you see it on the video. And he takes this piece of cake from his plate and he puts it in her mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And she's sort of like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Feeds her cake. So beautiful and so natural. (laughs) Just this natural responsiveness of the heart that's creative. We don't know how compassion is going to respond if we're willing to be with it, to be face to face with the suffering, accompanying everyone else in this wide ocean that we're in. One of His Holiness's favorite prayers from Shanti Deva, I think he says it every day. As long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain to drive away the sorrows of the world. That's some altruism. Can we have that same kind of altruistic wish? And so often in practice I use this prayer, I think about his holiness as an inspiration and so many of our ancestors who have endured hardship, who have developed this heart of compassion so that we could live, so that we could learn about it too. And I feel this way in retreat, especially when I'm suffering with a particular thing, whatever it is, big or small. I think about his holiness and I think, okay, If I could take this on, this headache, this grief, this doubt, this uncertainty, if I could feel this on the behalf of everyone else in the world who feels a little lost or lonely or doubtful or grieving, then I'm willing absolutely to feel this. This bodhicitta, this big heart that holds the sorrows of the world. And it makes the difficulty easier to bear. So knowing that we never practice alone and that we're accompanied by the strength and the fortitude of our ancestors, of Kuan Yin, this bodhisattva of compassion who greets us on our way into the hall. It's a huge heart. The 17th Karmapa in his answer to us, he said, don't doubt that this heart has the capacity to hold all of the suffering in the world. Indeed, that is what we're doing here. Thich not Hanh says, we're just walking each other home. And so, these space voyagers all of us traveling bravely out into the wilds and the mysteries of the mind. Can we know that we're traveling out in space together, accompanied? And that we can, we can do it. We have this capacity to hold all of it here in this fathom long body and to become not only space voyagers but alchemists of the heart transforming the sorrow, the grief, the cruelty into this deep well of compassion that knows how to respond with care. So we can just sit quietly for a moment or two. We can let the words settle. As long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I too remain to drive away the sorrows of the world. So thank you for your kind attention. And we'll chant the Karaniya Metta Sutta in English to close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.